1: I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet
2: wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language.
3: So this is a a fun episode of the Ezra Klein Show. Uh, I got to go this year to Recode's Code Conference, which is a big technology Silicon Valley confab and there were a lot of fascinating people there but but one of the folks who turned out to be a real rock star to the crowd and very specifically given my interest to me was a guy named patrick brown who was a biochemist at stanford and has more recently been uh he's founded a company called impossible foods and he has made out of plants a burger that tastes like a burger that bleeds when you cook it. Really serious chefs like David Chang, who's been on the show, have tried it and said it's the future of food. He has actually figured out how to make fake meat that is meat. It's really extraordinary. When there was this big night at the conference, and you know, all, all kinds of local chefs were there plying their wares, and the huge line was for these plant-based bloody completely environmentally sustainable, completely kind to animals, burgers. And this is a kind of innovation. I I think unlike a lot of what gets bandied about as disruptive technology in in the tech world, this is a kind of innovation, in in my view, that can significantly reduce the amount of suffering in the world. So I had the chance to to sit down with Patrick at the conference um, after eating his burger and talk to him about how he decided to do this, what he did, how a burger that is made out of a plant can bleed, why it actually uh, works to give you the the, the taste and flavor and aroma of a burger. And and we go from that into some really interesting stuff. This is fundamentally not just an episode about making a burger from plants. It's an episode about how does taste work? How does flavor work? What, What is food science and what is natural and what is unnatural? What is environmentally sustainable? So not only did I enjoy it, but it's one of the ones that makes me really excited. It's one of the ones where when I think about this and I think about the things that might be happening right now in our time that really changes the world a hundred years from now, these are are, are innovations that, that that I think are really fascinating. These are the kinds of things where in the future, when everybody's eating lab grown meat or plant based bleeding burgers, I think they might look on us and say, "What you were doing before then was was really cruel and unnecessary." And we're living through potentially that transition period. So even if you're a meat eater, um, part actually, especially if you're a meat eater, this is not a super preachy episode. Um, I, I think you'll enjoy it. He's a fascinating guy. He's a very smart guy. But as always before, going directly to Patrick Brown, I got three quick requests. One, please share this podcast. If you're enjoying it, share it with your friends, put it on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media, tie it by carrier pigeon and send it to your mother. However you communicate, that would be great. Second, listen to my other podcast, The Weeds with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. We are doing a lot of good, high-quality, deep policy wonkery. If you like the very uh, detailed parts of this show, you will love the stuff we get into on that show. And finally, please keep emailing me with your feedback, with your guest ideas at Show at Vox.com. All right. Now, here is Patrick Brown. So I had the Forget burger this. yesterday. huh. It was life-changing. Oh, yeah? It was great. <laughs> uh, well, that's great to hear. And there's a huge line. So here, here are my thoughts on the burger before we get like, into the, the, the deep interview uh-huh. stuff. It was amazing to me because it felt like you guys had managed to create a burger without quite creating meat. That if you taste the meat on its own, it doesn't quite taste like a burger, but you put it in a burger and it somehow serves all the functions of a burger. It has that kind of iron taste. It has that meaty umami. I mean, it was an amazing way of like decomposing and recomposing a food. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Like, what is different about what you're doing from the normal vegetarian burgers I see in the market? Why is what you're doing so different?
1: Well, we approach the problem completely differently because the only customer that we care about, given our mission, is someone who loves meat, is not looking for an alternative, and is not going to compromise on the pleasure of eating meat for some principle, Mm -hmm. or because... They're concerned about the climate impact or something like that, which is the vast majority of consumers who love meat. That's our target customer. And because they will not compromise on any of the things that they value about meat, that makes the challenge for us much, much harder. And it makes it makes what we have to accomplish much, much harder than just making something that is a good faith effort at a burger-like entity that someone who doesn't want to eat meat, but wants some burgerish thing, will buy. We had to make something that a meat lover will prefer to what they're getting today from an animal. And that meant we had to approach it as a very deep scientific problem. We had to understand in great detail what it is, you know, about... Let's focus on a burger. We're working on other meats and so forth. But what it is about the burger, in sort of molecular terms that gives it that very distinctive flavor and aroma and handling properties and cooking properties and texture and juiciness and stuff like that. And then we had to figure out where we could get ingredients from sustainable, scalable, affordable plant sources that had this very precise set of properties that would enable us to produce a product that would satisfy a meat lover. And that's just never been done before. Tell me about your
3: conception of a meat lover, who, given how cheap meat is, given how prevalent it is, given that it really is delicious, Mm -hmm. why would they switch? Why go after them at all with a meat replacement? Why not either try to demonize meat or... Sure. Hell, it may have been more than
1: that. Um, (laughs) Well, why would they switch is one question, why Uh would we go after them is another. So why would they switch? Well, it means we have to clear a very high bar because we have to produce a product that for a consumer who's not gonna cuss any breaks, Mm -hmm. um, outperforms as a burger what we're getting today from a cow. Right. If you do that, they'll switch. And in fact, we have a lot of data from a large kind of consumer test that we did uh, a few months ago with 600 burger eaters in four cities around the country. We gave them our burger. They're all meat lovers. They had to be regular burger eaters to participate. And then we asked them a bunch of questions, but one of them was effectively, if you could choose between this and the burger that you've been buying at the same price, which would you choose? And they chose ours by two to one. Hmm. Okay. So these are people who up until that moment, presumably it would never have occurred to them, they certainly weren't looking for a burger alternative, right. and it never would have occurred to them that they might prefer it. But what it told us is that people who love meat, they love meat because it's delicious, affordable, nutritious, familiar, it's got some you know, kind of cultural resonance for them and so forth. The fact that it's made from an animal has never been part of the value proposition. It's just never been separable from delicious meat. Mm-hmm. They have never seen, I don't think the people who love meat, have never seen any meat that they found delicious that wasn't made from an animal. So it's, never, it's not a thought experiment they've done. When they actually see it, they can now consider the fact that, yeah, actually the fact it's made from an animal, not only is it not part of the value proposition, but it's gotten a lot of negatives associated mm-hmm. with it. There are public health issues, there are food safety risks, there's antibiotics and hormones that yeah. go into it, cholesterol, even the environmental impact, although it's not, not going to change their behavior per se, more and more people are aware of it, and, and it bothers them. Right. Not, not enough to make them change their behavior, but you know, if, if they don't have to change their behavior, i.e. they can have a burger that's uncompromisingly delicious and affordable and nutritious and stuff like that then it's an incentive to change. So I'm, I'm yeah. so
3: fascinated by the way you have structured the business of this, because it, it seems to me that you have a set of scientific innovations and then a, a set of business innovations or business strategies. And, and mm-hmm. the two things are related but different. And the more I look at what you're doing and the more I, I speak to your colleagues and understand that you're trying to sort of start up market and you know go for the, the meat consumer who does not want to, to leave meat, the more it feels to me that what you're trying to do in meat is what Tesla did in electric cars, that there had been electric cars before Tesla, but they had sort of been aimed at hippies. They had been aimed at people who right. were maybe not, felt bad about the car market. People yeah. already didn't like SUVs. There were, or, they were yeah.
1: incentivized. They were already looking for something like that, right. and they were willing to compromise on performance and affordability and stuff right. like that because doing something that had less of a negative impact on the environment was sufficiently important for them. Yeah, it's very, I think that in that sense, in quite a lot of ways, I think that those are legitimate parallels that if your goal is to address a big global issue, which was ours, and I, I assume Tesla's, at least a big part of their motivating goals to begin with, you don't do that by having a successful niche product. You have to have something that the mainstream consumer will want to buy for all the reasons that drive them to make a particular choice, Mm -hmm. and it means you have to have a much higher standard of quality, affordability, and so forth, or you're just wasting your time. That was, I think, Tesla's thesis, and it was ours for sure. And then the thing about starting at kind of a relatively, particularly sort of discerning consumer, particularly uncompromising consumer and a higher price point in both cases, I think it was necessary because until we reach a certain scale, we don't have the economies of scale, mm-hmm. and it's hard for us to be competing with mass market ground right. beef, but we can be competitive with organic ground beef mm-hmm. um, or you know the, the sort of stuff that you would eat at a, a premium burger joint or a uh, restaurant. So f- from pra- for practical reasons, that's a reasonable choice. And secondly, our scale is small, so we can only serve a certain number of consumers, and we want to, for each consumer that we serve, we want to maximize the brand building value. Mm-hmm. So again, I think that, that it just turns out that it's necessary, but it's also, I think, a good strategic choice. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. And, and it seems to me that within that, what has struck me so, so interesting about the way you are framing it to me here, the way Tesla's framed things for a long time, just as, a, as, a, as again a business question is that both of you de-emphasize what I think traditionally one would think of as the core value of the product, which is to say that you're trying to make a burger in which its plant origins are almost incidental to
1: its appeal. Yes, I I wouldn't say they're completely incidental, but if you don't compete successfully on the things that are the major drivers of the consumer's choices for that Mm -hmm. category of product, you're never going to have a significant impact. So you have to focus on that first. And I think to some degree, the more you emphasize things that are important to us, the fact it's made from -hmm. from plants that's got a much lower environmental impact and better for public health and all that sort of stuff, if you start talking about that too much, people feel like, well, if that's what the story's all about, that means you're asking me to compromise on on the things that are more important to me, which is deliciousness and stuff like that. And I think it's the same with electric cars. If you frame it as, you know, this is much better for the environment. You know, for me, if I see a product in the grocery store and says gluten-free, it's kind of like synonymous with, well, you're compromising flavor for something that, you right. know, I don't care that much about. It's kind of a back ended way of saying, you know, you're, you're, we're asking you to compromise on the things you care about, mm-hmm. so... How did you
3: end up here? I mean, I am not intimately familiar with your background, but you were a cancer researcher.
1: I was a biomedical scientist, I guess you could say, and um, did a lot of research. Some of it involved cancer and, you know, genetics and genomics. How did you turn to this problem?
3: When was the first time that you thought about the problem of, can a burger be created? Can meat be created that is based on plants and more appealing than animal products?
1: what i thought of first was that using animals as a food production technology is the biggest threat by substantial margin to the global environment today and that's something that actually is more widely recognized than you might think by people in the environmental sciences and the mm-hmm. climate sciences world although it gets virtually no airtime and the reason is because people recognize it as a problem but they don't see it as a solvable problem because they know that people aren't going to change their, di- mm-hmm. you know, they'll say, "We don't see a solution to." I mean, this is something that you've probably read. There, we don't see a realistic solution to addressing climate change that doesn't involve a substantial change in kind of dietary patterns. Okay, but it's kind of unimaginable that that'll happen, so it really doesn't get doesn't get spoken about a lot. But anyway, point being that. I came at it thinking, I want to solve that problem, that using animals as technology for producing foods is incredibly destructive and inefficient, and it's an urgent problem because the environmental impact it has is really pushing us into a very dangerous place. Mm -hmm. For the first couple of months when I was thinking about it, I thought the solution was going to be to put together this most compelling sort of scientific case, I would, I would gather together a bunch of, you know, really unbiased group of experts from economics and environmental sciences and public health and blah, 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 and put together a really thoughtful policy kind of brief. Uh, because of my scientific background, I was, had connections to the National Research Council, which is kind of nominal advisory, scientific advisory Group to the U.S. government. I thought we could have an NRC study that would just be an unbiased look at this, and it would move the needle on policy. And then eventually, I came to my senses. Like, like every NRC study, it'll it'll get printed and it'll sit on some senator's shelf, and and it would move the n- needle, you know, a, a nanometer, and uh, um, complete waste of time. Basically, that, that may sound cynical, but anyway, that's what I concluded. And then it dawned on me that actually the market-based solution was the way to go. So I mean, in retrospect, I was kind of like, I sort of kicked myself for being so lame that I didn't, I didn't realize that immediately. But um, and when was this? This was like five and a half years ago. So it was maybe six months before I started the company. I decided that this was the route to go, and I started actually doing experiments in, in my home and and a little bit in my lab at Stanford just kind of poking around, testing some ideas about, about how we might approach it just to kind of get enough preliminary data to just convince me that this is doable.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic. An AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash box. You can go to Shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box.
0: Hi, we're visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
3: So there have obviously been, for a long time, a lot of plant-based meat alternative companies, some of them worth hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars. They have a lot of scientists on staff, and they have a tremendous incentive to create great alternatives. You jumped into this five and a half years ago Mm -hmm. without that kind of background, without, at the outset, that kind of funding. What made you think then that there was an opportunity that they weren't picking up?
1: And, And what was your theory for why it wasn't being picked up? It would be worthwhile asking them. I know some people who are in that business, actually. I know quite a lot of people who are in that business. And I think the, there were two problems. One was that their image of who their customer was is someone who's looking for an alternative, mm-hmm. okay? And that's a lower bar. They didn't set out with the notion that they have to make something that is completely uncompromising in its performance as food and so forth. It just had to be pretty good, so that someone who's looking for an alternative it had to be better than the other meat replacements out there mm-hmm. basically in a sense that was that was the bar they had to clear the other thing is that to be frank the the whole food world and the food industry does not think very innovatively there's some very good science in terms of food safety and stuff like that and but you know the food we eat today compared to just about any other aspect of our life, would be readily recognizable if someone came through a time machine from 5,000 years ago. The really? space of possibilities, well, this, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating, but, this, like the, but the space of possibilities, and... uh, okay, m and are a really brilliant innovation, but no, that's kind of like the way the food industry, bless their hearts, but the way the food ind- industry thinks is that genius, Purple M&M's, you know, (laughs) the innovative product of the year. They put pretzels in them now. Well, I mean, Mm. that was big. It is. But in terms of just thinking about let's just take a big step back and do some fundamental research and understand how to make something a completely different way, that's not the way they typically think. And when, when I saw this as a hard problem, as a hard scientific problem, and that's why when, you know, I started the company, we basically started by putting together just this awesome team of scientists who are basic scientists they're not people who come from the food world they're people who come from biomedical research world who think sort of about how to get a foot fu- you know when you like in the biomedical world you don't uh just say okay here's a disease let's just take some straightforward route to solving it you say i want to get a really deep fundamental understanding of what causes this? What are all the, you know, kind of in molecular terms, what underlies it? And then we can be very deliberate in developing ways to treat or diagnose mm-hmm. or something like that. And that's the way that, you know, I thought this needed to be approached. And it turns out, okay, so I'll give you an example of what I would say is sort of missed opportunities because the food world doesn't, I don't want to disparage the food world. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we have great people from the mm-hmm. food world working at the company. But An obvious question to me, I mean, it was obviously essential for what we were trying to do, is why does meat taste like meat? Presumably, you would think that that would have occurred to people, but nobody had ever really taken a serious look at that question. And when we really tried to understand that in molecular terms, it turned out that the answer was, or let's say 90% of the answer, was incredibly simple. And I know no one had ever really seriously answered the question because, A, it was quite answerable, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a single scientific publication, there were no patents or anything like that that disclosed the answer yeah. to the question. And that's how I know, in a sense, that, and I also know from talking to them, that other companies who are working on, on foods to replace meat have really not taken a deep scientific approach to the problem.
3: When you ask the question, why does meat taste like meat, what are the questions that actually resolves into Because you can tell me if I'm completely off base here, but my intuition is that that ends up not being the real question. That there's some set of things happening that aren't just taste that are coming together to create the
1: impression of meat. It's, It's interesting that you say that, because there's a lot of truth to that. Kind of recognizing that is part of the key to being able to do what we do. So one thing that you want to do is Your perception of flavor is basically because of your ability to detect specific constellation of chemical compounds through your taste and more through your sense of smell. So one thing you want to know is what are those compounds? And secondly, what it is about meat that generates those compounds. Okay. Mm -hmm. So first to the first question: when you look at what is the constellation of chemical compounds that conveys the impression that this is meat? Like when you encounter them, you immediately recognize that as meat, right? Turns out that, before we get into where they come from, but what they are, we do this kind of experiment all the time where we, let's just say we take this airspace above cooking meat that carries all the compounds that convey the aroma of meat, and we put it through... uh, Uh, instrument that separates out the thousands of different compounds that comprise that you know that atmosphere you could say that aroma and they get separated into a bunch of individual compounds that we can identify chemically but we can also take those separated compounds and deliver them one by one so that someone can smell them one one by one and it's extremely interesting what happens because The smell, the unmistakable smell of freshly cooked beef is conveyed by uh, hundreds of compounds. I mean, when you separate out that, you know, uh, aroma into compounds, there are more than 100, depending on how good someone's sense of smell is, more than 100 different compounds that have a distinct smell that you can smell. Essentially, none of them smell like beef. They smell like, you know, buttered popcorn, maple syrup, uh, dirty huh. diaper, uh, musty basement, violets. You know, there are compounds that uh, one of our scientists, there's a compound, identifies as a smell of a raspberry bug, which is she, she, she uh, her her family had a farm that grew raspberries and and there was a particular kind of bug that would appear on the raspberries, and when she accidentally bit into one, it had a very distinctive smell, and on and on and on. The thing is that that group of compounds becomes meat up here you have learned that when you when you encounter that that set of volatile right. compounds in those proportions that signals that signals meat when you look at those compounds and, and again those compounds are things you never i i i you know encounter in isolation so you you typically that's why you get these kind of weird labels on them another one one of our scientists Describe the smell as a pineapple martini. I don't even know what that is, but because they're just reaching for the, record, for the I don't closest a familiar martini is a martini.
3: What's that? I don't believe a pineapple martini is a martini. <laughs> okay.
1: Well <laughs> um, There's a lot of debate over that. Sure. Actually, One of the great questions in food yeah, science. Yeah, really What you realize is that a lot of these compounds are compounds. They're not meat specific And what that means is that actually you can find the ingredients from other natural sources you just have to bring them together, you know, kind of like in the right way, and then that is perceived unmistakably and as meat. Mm-hmm. So you had an interesting insight about about um, you know what constitutes that that smell. The other thing we had to figure out was what it is about meat that generates that particular set of compounds. And I sort of had the hypothesis early on, actually, even before the company was started, that. A big part of the answer would be this: would be heme, which is this uh, chemical compound that's found in every, every, pretty much every living cell on Earth. It's not meat specific by a long shot, but it's the it's a compound that in your blood that carries oxygen. Mm-hmm. It's what makes your blood red. It's what gives it its high iron content, and it's super abundant in the animal tissues that that we call meat, mm-hmm. um, which it's why you know red meat is red and white meat is pink and because it's got a lot of heme. Like I said, plants have heme, bacteria have heme, yeast have heme, but meat has insanely high concentrations of heme. And because it does, and heme is not only an oxygen carrier, but it's a great catalyst of chemical reactions. And it turns out that all the chemical reactions, so those volatile compounds that you recognize the smell of meat, basically how they're created is that there are simple kind of like the basic building blocks of life that are found in every cell. There are amino acids and sugars and vitamins and so forth. And if, if I just had a solution of them and you ate or, or or smelled it, it would smell mildly savory and so forth. The mm-hmm. broth of those like yeah. simple kind of you know molecules of life. If you throw in heme and heat, the heme catalyzes reactions, just this... Uh, a myriad of chemical reactions that turns those relatively small number of simple ubiquitous you know building blocks of life you might say into these hundreds of very fragrant compounds that that are meat and so once we discovered that it basically meant that we don't have to put artificial flavorings in there it was kind of like recognizing that you kind of might think you're taking this chemical approach to it. This means you're just going to throw a bunch of chemicals in there and create the flavor. But it's the other way around. When you understand a fundamental level, you can use like simple natural stuff to create the flavor mm. just by using the same sort of basic processes that creates the flavor in meat, just using natural molecules, is, you know, heme is in every cell, amino acids, vitamins, and stuff like that. And it even makes it makes it cheaper. So if you look at the stuff that's on the market as meat replacements, I know from people in the industry, their most expensive ingredient is the artificial, you know, the flavors that they have to put in there that they buy from flavor houses and so forth. But we just use these simple and readily available like amino acids and sugars and stuff like that, throw in heme, bang, Hmm. we get them for free.
3: I think you're saying it. Sounds kind of fantastic, it's natural. I mean, it's a, really, it's a really interesting thing you've done. But I think back to a controversy that happened maybe three or four years ago now, and you might have followed it. Some website came out alleging that the beef in a Taco Bell beef taco was only, I might forget the exact number, but I think it was only 32 or 38% beef. Mm-hmm. And Taco Bell fired back and they said no, that's ridiculous, the beef is at least 88% beef. Mm-hmm. And nobody's view anywhere was that it was 100% beef. It mm-hmm. had some soy in it and it had other things. Right. But one way you could have imagined people responding to that is to say, oh great, if I'm getting the same beef flavor, but there's less animal necessary for it, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But people were very upset about that. They wanted their beef to be made of cow. That's what they thought when they thought beef. How do you make sure you don't get trapped in an uncanny valley of food? where you have made something that registers the taste as meat, but that people just have a status quo bias and intuition that, that meat comes from animals. And as much as there might be bad things about that, they at least know what it is. Mm-hmm. To go back, I'm sure you've read your Michael Paul, and so you know, that that's something our grandparents ate. Mm-hmm. And this heme solution, natural though it may be, is not. How do, you, how do you deal with that belief that natural foods are something we've had for a long time and it's just safer to stick with them?
1: That, again, that's a bunch of complicated ideas and questions. But, okay, the Taco Bell thing, I hadn't really thought about it, but as you were saying it, my perception of it is that the, the, the problem is not that people wanted animal parts in their tacos. It's that they felt that they were lied to, that there was a breach of faith, and that, yet again, a food company is trying to rip them off by by uh, misrepresenting their products, mm-hmm. okay, my take on it is that, that was really the problem okay. for most people we're certainly not going to i mean we're we're going to be maybe the most transparent food company on the planet. I mean we're going to be completely straight about everything we put in there because I feel like that's just an essential part of earning the trust of your consumers mm-hmm. is that you're not trying to put something over on them, you'll answer any question about how you make it. I mean, actually, it contrasts a lot with the meat industry, which really does not want you to know much about how that product wound up on your plate. Right. And, in fact, they have laws passed that effectively outlaw a reporter going into one of their plants Mm -hmm. and and reporting on what happens in there or something like that. So it's... it's, uh, uh, But at any rate... That's one thing. I think that the other issue you were raising is that people think that somehow a food that is put together in a sort of a deliberate way out of a bunch of components is problematic. But I I think that if you just look at the whole history of, you know, human culture and food and stuff like that, it's all about nature plus human ingenuity produces the foods we eat, and virtually, you know, no meal happens that you don't have a food that involved a lot of deliberate choices of what parts of plants and how, you know, or what parts of animals or whatever to use, and precisely how you cook them, how you mix them, whether you puree them, mm-hmm. whether you, you know, right. all, all that kind of stuff. Because those are familiar, people just consider that. Well, that's that kind of gets a pass on whether it's uh, you know you've deviated too much from nature. But anyway, I just feel like that the reason that people don't trust foods that I think are have had uh, a lot you know that have a lot of ingredients or have you know a lot of let's say you know fractionation of components and stuff like that. I think is because the the traditional food industry has broken the trust of, I mean, I don't mean in general, but there are a lot of big companies in the food industry by starting with some ingredients that are nutritious and come from natural sources. And without really being concerned about preserving their nutritional qualities, have focused on how to make something really cheap and try to compose the product of as much as possible of the cheapest stuff that, that delivers sort of primitive eating satisfaction at the expense of the consumer's health uh, for their profit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of given a bad name to, you know, anything that did, didn't just fall off a tree. Right. We have to just show by our actions that, and just by being transparent, that we're producing a food that's just absolutely in the tradition of food that involves very deliberate choices that are made with the deliberate intent of producing the most delicious, nutritious, healthy food that we can possibly make in that category. And one, one thing that we found, actually, with, you know, for example, chefs that we've talked to and invited into our thing is often they're very initially kind of skeptical, mm-hmm. just as you're sort of like, I think it's like the uncanny valley thing, that how can you take a bunch of ingredients that don't look, taste, in no way resemble meat, And transform them into something that is in all these ways, um, you know, looks, smells, cooks, behaves like meat without some kind of creepy, you know, stuff going on. And what we've found is that we just do it right in front of their eyes with the raw ingredients, and we've done this a few times, just say, Come into our research kitchen. We're just going to start with just the the raw starting you know, material, and we'll show you precisely how it's done. And you'll see that it's all familiar stuff that you have seen in your kitchen before. And you know, we're we're showing you this in a completely transparent way. And at that point, they feel like, okay, I get it. It's fine. You know, yeah, I'm I'm totally comfortable with it. So I feel like transparency is a big part of it.
3: You mentioned the environmental impact of meat earlier, yeah. and it's tremendous yeah um, just because to me to, to folks it will be opaque, how do you know how do we know that the it is easier on the environment to produce this burger than mm-hmm. it is to produce a, a patty from a cow like what is what is the relative magnitudes and how have you tested them?
1: First of all, you know this very well, but I think most people and actually you know six years ago, I was one of them are vaguely aware that you know animal farming has a pretty big environmental impact but really have no idea how how big it is one is the greenhouse gas impact it's been looked at quite extensively by people who have no stake in in how the answer comes out and i would say certainly among people who are who who are uh, aware of the sort of rigorous studies of this kind it's clear that it is produces more greenhouse gases than, by quite a large margin, actually, than would be produced if you took every oil field in the Middle East and set it on fire and left it burning, more greenhouse gases than the United States produces. It's a huge greenhouse gas source, and there's, there's, there's more to it than that. It's the biggest consumer and polluter of water in the world by a very large factor, and i think one of the most surprising things is the land footprint which is which is mm-hmm. humongous so according to the international livestock research institute whose motto is better lives through livestock animal farming occupies 45% of every square inch of land on earth that's not covered by water or ice and as a result of that it's incredibly dis- destructive to ecosystems so there was a, a very underreported Study that was published about two years ago by the World Wildlife Fund and the Zoological Society of London. So those two organizations and 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 some other scientists, every ten years for the past forty years, do a sort of census of many thousands of animal species. They try to estimate the number of individuals, individual members of each of these species, and they were selected to sort of uh, represent the d- diversity of wildlife in general. And uh, in 2014, they reported that. The number of wild animals on planet Earth across mammals, birds, amphibians, reptiles, fish, was less than half what it had been 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. We've cut the number of wild animals on Earth by a factor of two in 40 years, and the biggest drivers of this were basically the use of animals as a technology for food. Fishing, so that as you probably know, and I think a lot of people know now that you know, the uh, fish populations in oceans are being and freshwater are being massively depleted. It's it's uh, um, number of marine fish is forty five percent lower than it was forty five years ago, and freshwater fish seventy percent lower than it was forty years ago, and it's just going fast down. Um, but animal farming, because of its huge land footprint, destroys and disrupts um, habitats on a massive scale. And in terms of terrestrial animals, it's by far the biggest driver of this kind of wildlife holocaust, I would say. And to me, that is the scariest thing about the environmental impact. Because if you disrupt ecosystems that severely, the cascading effects, which are unpredictable and will take decades to really play off, could really push us into a very uh, to a place where we really don't know how to how to fix the problem So that's the impact of that industry. Okay, so what do we how do we know that we're doing better? So there are a lot of public public statistics, which we rely on about the impact of animal farming So we have a full-time person at the company whose whose sole job is to Who's our sustainability analyst and basically to to? Advise us on on when we're making the choices about our ingredients and process to to minimize the environmental impact Okay but we've done a what we call a life cycle analysis. It's a jargony term, but basically it means that that we track the land, water, and greenhouse gas impact of from you know start to finish production, transportation, uh, processing, every component of that impact of all our ingredients and processes, and tally that up. And we've had it independently audited. And what that has shown is that. Compared to the same burger produced from a cow in the US, producing our burger generates about a quarter of the greenhouse gases, uses a tenth of the water, and has a land footprint that's less than 5% of producing the same product from a cow. Hmm. And that's how we know. And I can say, really, because we're doing this, this is, this is the reason the company exists is to really address this big global problem. And it matters a lot to us that we minimize the environmental impact, and so we are not going to kid ourselves that we're doing some good without being extremely meticulous in making sure that that we really are accomplishing what what we intend to do.
3: Um, my wife is a vegan. I'm a sort of weird kind of vegetarian, but I've been very involved in food. That's, that, that's and,
1: redundant, right? In, yeah, food and
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, I've been very involved in sort of food environmental issues for a
1: long time. yeah, I, a, I saw you'd written something about it. yeah, uh, I had a food policy column post for a while. and uh-huh. I just
3: I wrote a bunch of things during that period about how if there was ever going to be an answer to these things, that it was going to have to be technological, mm-hmm. that we the whole food movement skepticism of technology of processed food was ultimately never going to be it was never going to lead to a solution that was scalable. Mm-hmm. And so just what you're doing is super exciting to me.
1: Yeah, thanks. And I think this whole... No, I mean, the thing, again, I feel like, what's the line you cross when you get, you know, labeled a processed food? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's, a, its a strange thing. But um, And, you know, I like simple foods. Yeah. So it matters to us. I mean, first of all, for scientists, scientists like, quote, elegant solutions. Yeah. Like, it's nice to find the sort of simplest way of doing things. So we really value that a lot making mm-hmm. our product as simply like understanding it deeply and then having a simple solution to it. But also because it, it's, it's aesthetically appealing to me and I think other consumers to have their food be, you know, relatively simple and to yeah. have a clear understanding of where it comes from. I think yeah. that's the main thing is that just understanding how it got there.
3: So the point you anyway. make that you're not even allowed to see how a burger is made, but you guys can do a lot better than that. I mean, I think I'm just super fascinated by what you're doing. And the the business model, I mean, in the other side of my head, is just, just really fantastic. It's really, really interesting. interesting to see you guys try to do this. So I wish well, you, honestly, I wish you all the luck in the okay. world.
1: Okay. Well, when we're duking it out with uh, <laughs> the incumbents, please go to bat for us. You let
3: me know. I am, I am proudly biased on this <laughs> issue. Yeah. <laughs> That was Patrick Brown. Thank you to him for the time he spent with me. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez, and to all of you. You are wonderful people for tuning in every week. I appreciate you being here, and I'm looking forward to next week.